Part 2 of Lucian's True History by Lucian of Samosata, translated by Francis Hicks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Terry Cronin. Part 2 Upon this we began to be weary of our abode in the whale, and our tarians there did much trouble us. We therefore set all our wits a-work to find out some means or other to clear us from our captivity. First we thought it would do well to dig a hole through his right side and make our escape that way forth, which we began to labour at lustily. But after we had pierced him five furlongs deep and found it was to no purpose, we gave it over. Then we devised to set the wood on fire, for that would certainly kill him without all question, and being once dead our issue would be easy enough. This we also put in practice, and began our project at the tail-end, which burnt seven days and as many nights before he had any feeling of our fireworks. Upon the eighth and ninth days we perceived he began to grow sickly, for he gaped more dully than he was wont to, and sooner closed his mouth again. The tenth and eleventh he was thoroughly mortified, and began to stink. Upon the twelfth day we bethought ourselves, though almost too late, that unless we underpropped his chops when he gaped next to keep them from closing, we should be in danger of perpetual imprisonment within his dead carcass, and there miserably perish. We therefore pitched long beams of timber upright within his mouth, to keep it from shutting, and then made our ship in a readiness, and provided ourselves with store of fresh water and all other things necessary for our use, Syntharus taking upon him to be our pilot, and the next morning the whale died. Then we hauled our ship through the void passages, and fastening cables about his teeth, by little and little settled it into the sea, and mounting the back of the whale, sacrificed to Neptune, and for three days together took up our lodging hard by the trophy for we were becalmed. The fourth day we put to sea, and met with many dead corpses that perished in the late sea-fight which our ship hit against, whose bodies we took measure of with great admiration, and sailed for a few days in very temperate weather. But after that the north wind blew so bitterly that a great frost ensued, wherewith the whole sea was all frozen up, and not only superficially upon the upper part, but in depth also, the depth of four hundred fathoms, so that we were fain to forsake our ship and run upon the ice. The wind, sitting long in this corner, and we were not able to endure it, put this device in practice, which was the invention of Syntharis. With mattocks and other instruments, we made a mighty cave in the water, wherein we sheltered ourselves forty days together. In it we kindled fire, and fed upon fish, of which we found great plenty in our digging. At the last, our provision falling short, we returned to our frozen ship, which we set upright, and spreading her sails, went forward as well as if we had been upon water, leisurely and gently sliding upon the ice. But on the fifth day the weather grew warm, and the frost break, and all was turned to water again. We had not sailed three hundred furlongs forwards, but we came to a little island that was desert, where we only took in fresh water, which now began to fail us, and with our shot killed two wild bulls, and so departed. These bulls have their horns growing not upon their heads, but under their eyes, as Momus thought it better. Then we entered into a sea, not of water, but of milk in which appeared a white island full of vines. This island was only a great cheese, well-pressed, as we afterwards found when we fed upon it, about some five-and-twenty furlongs in bigness. The vines were full of clusters of grapes, out of which we could crush no wine but only milk. In the midst of the island there was a temple built, dedicated to Galatea, one of the daughters of Nereus, as by the inscription appeared. As long as we remained there the soil yielded us food and victuals, and our drink was the milk that came out of the grapes. In these, as they said, reigneth Tyro, the daughter of Salmoneus, who after her departure received this girded in the hands of Neptune. 
In this island we rested ourselves five days, and on the sixth put to sea again, a gentle gale attending us, and the seas all still and quiet. The eighth day, as we sailed onward, not in milk any longer, but in salt and azure water, we saw many men running upon the sea, like unto us every way forth, both in shape and stature, but only for their feet, which were of cork, whereupon I suppose they had the name of philopods. We marveled much when we saw they did not sink, but keep above water, and travel upon it so boldly. These came unto us, and saluted us in the Grecian language, and said they were bound towards Fellow, their own country, and for a while ran along by us, but at last turned their own way and left us, wishing us a happy and prosperous voyage. Within a while after, many islands appeared, and near unto them, upon our left hand, stood Fellow, the place whereunto they were traveling, which was a city seated upon a mighty, great, and round cork. Further off, and more towards the right hand, we saw five other islands, large and mountainous, in which much fire was burning. But directly before us was a spacious, flat island, distant from us not above five hundred furlongs, and approaching somewhat near unto it, a wonderful fragrant air breathed upon us, of a most sweet and delicate smell, such as Herodotus, the story-writer, saith ariseth out of Arabia the happy, consisting of a mixture of roses, daffodils, gilly-flowers, lilies, violets, myrtles, bays, and blossoms of vines. Such a dainty, odiferous savour was conveyed unto us. Being delighted with this smell, and hoping for better fortunes after our long labours, we got within a little of the isle, in which we found many havens on every side, not subject to overflowing, and yet of great capacity, and rivers of clean water emptying themselves easily into the sea, with meadows and herbs and musical birds, some singing upon the shore, and many upon the branches of trees, a still and gentle air encompassing the whole country. When pleasant blasts gently stirred the woods, the motion of the branches made a continual delightsome melody, like the sound of wind instruments in a solitary place. A kind of clamour also was heard mixed with it, yet not tumultuous nor offensive, but like the noise of a banquet, when some do play on wind instruments, some commend the music, and some with their hands applaud the pipe or the harp, all which yielded us so great content that we boldly entered the haven, made fast our ship, and landed, leaving in her only Syntharis and two more of our companions behind us. Passing along through a sweet meadow, we met with the guards that used to sail about the island, who took us and bound us with garlands of roses, which are the strictest bands they have, to be carried to their governor. From them we heard, as we were upon the way, that it was the island of those that are called Blessed, and that Radamanthus was governor there, to whom we were brought, and placed the fourth in order of them that were to be judged. The first trial was about Ajax, the son of Telamon, whether he were a meet man to be admitted into the society of the heroes or not. The objections against him were his madness and the killing of himself, and after long pleading to and fro, Radamanthus gave this sentence, that for the present he should be put to Hippocrates, the physician of Kos, to be purged with Helleborus, and upon the recovery of his wits to have admittance. The second was a controversy of love, Theseus and Menelaus contending which had the better right to Helen. But Radamanthus gave judgment on Menelaus' side, in respect of the manifold labors and perils he had incurred for that marriage's sake, whereas Theseus had wives enough beside to live withal, as the Amazon and the daughters of Minos. The third was a question of precedency between Alexander, the son of Philip, and Hannibal, the Carthaginian, in which Alexander was preferred, and his throne placed next to the elder Cyrus the Persian. In the fourth place we appeared, and he demanded of us what reason we had, being living men, to take land in that sacred country, and we told him all our adventures in order as they befell us. Then he commanded us to stand aside, 
and considering upon it a great while, in the end proposed it to the benchers, which were many, and among them Aristides, the Athenian, surnamed the Just. And when he was provided what sentence to deliver, he said that for our busy curiosity and needless travels we should be accountable after our death, but for the present we should have a time limited for our abode, during which we should feast with the heroes and then depart, prefixing us seven months' liberty to conclude our tarriance and no more. Then our garlands fell off from us of themselves, and we were set loose and led into the city to feast with the blessed. The city was all of gold, compassed with a wall made of the precious stone smaragdus, which had seven gates, every one cut out of a whole piece of timber of cinnamon tree. The pavement of the city and all the ground within the walls was ivory. The temples of all the gods are built of beryl, with large altars made all of one whole amethyst, upon which they offer their sacrifices. About the city runneth a river of most excellent sweet ointment, in breadth an hundred cubits of the larger measure, and so deep that a man may swim in it with ease. For their baths they have great houses of glass, which they warm with cinnamon, and their bathing tubs are filled with warm dew instead of water. Their only garments are cobwebs of pure color. Neither have they any bodies, but are intactile and without flesh, a mere shape and presentation only. And being thus bodiless, they yet stand, and are moved, are intelligent, and can speak, and their naked soul seemeth to wander up and down in a corporal likeness. For if a man touch them not, he cannot say otherwise, but that they have bodies, altogether like shadows standing upright, and not as they are of a dark color. No man waxeth any older than he was before, but of what age he comes thither, so he continues. Neither is there any night with them, nor indeed clear day, but like the twilight towards morning before the sun be up, such a kind of light do they live in. They know but one season of the year, which is the spring, and feel no other wind but Zephyrus. The region flourisheth with all sorts of flowers, and with all pleasing plants fit for shade. Their vines bear fruit twelve times a year, every month once. Their pomegranate trees, their apple trees, and their other fruit, they say, bear thirteen times in the year, for in the month called Minus they bear twice. Instead of wheat, their ears bear them loaves of bread ready-baked, like unto mushrooms. About the city are three hundred threescore and five wells of water, and as many of honey, and five hundred of sweet ointment, for they are less than the other. They have seven rivers of milk, and eight of wine. They keep their feast without the city, in a field called Elysium, which is a most pleasant meadow, environed with woods of all sorts, so thick that they serve for a shade to all that are invited, who sit upon beds of flowers, and are waited upon, and have everything brought unto them by the winds, unless it be to have the wine filled and that there is no need of, for about the banqueting place are mighty great trees growing of clear and pure glass, and the fruit of those trees are drinking cups and other kind of vessels of what fashion or greatness ye will. And every man that comes to the feast gathers one or two of those cups, and sets them before him, which will be full of wine presently, and then they drink. Instead of garlands, the nightingales and other musical birds gather flowers with their beaks out of the meadows adjoining, and flying over their heads with chirping notes scatter them among them. They are anointed with sweet ointment in this manner. Sundry clouds draw that unguent out of the fountains and the rivers, which, settling over the heads of them that are at the banquet, the least blast of wind makes a small rain fall upon them like unto a dew. After supper they spend the time in music and singing. Their ditties that are in most request they take out of Homer's verses, who is there present himself, and feasteth among them, sitting next above Ulysses. Their choirs consist of boys and virgins, which were directed and assisted by Eunomus, the Locrian and Arian the Lesbian, and Anacreon, and Stesichorus, who hath had a place there ever since his reconcilement with Helena. 
As soon as these have done, there enter a second choir of swans, swallows, and nightingales. And when they have ended, the whole woods ring like wind instruments by the stirring of the air. But that which maketh most for their mirth are two wells adjoining to the banqueting place, the one of laughter, the other of pleasure. Of these every man drinks to begin the feast withal, which makes them spend the whole time in mirth and laughter. I will also relate unto you what famous men I saw in that association. There were all the demigods, and all that fought against Troy, excepting Ajax the Locrian. He only, they told me, was tormented in the region of the unrighteous. Of barbarians there was the elder and the younger Cyrus, and Anacarsis the Scythian, Simulxis the Thracian, and Numa the Italian. There was also Lycurgus the Lacedaemonian, and Phocian, and Tullus the Athenian, and all the wise men, unless it were Periander. I also saw Socrates, the son of Sophroniscus, prattling with Nestor and Palamedes, and close by him stood Hyacinthus, the Lacedaemonian, and the gallant Narcissus, and Hyla, and other beautiful and lovely youths, and for aught I could gather by him, he was far in love with Hyacinthus, for he discoursed with him more than all the rest. For what cause, they said, Radamanthus was offended at him, and often threatened to thrust him out of the island if he continued to play the fool in that fashion, and not give over his idle manner of jesting when he was at their banquet. Only Plato was not present, for they said he dwelled in a city framed by himself, observing the same rule of government and laws as he had prescribed for them to live under. Aristippus and Epicurus are prime men amongst them, because they are the most jovial good fellows and the best companions. Diogenes the Sinopean was so far altered from the man he was before that he married with Laius the harlot, and was many times so drunk that he would rise and dance about the room as a man out of his senses. Aesop the Phrygian served them for a jester. There was not one Stoic in company, but were still busied in ascending the height of virtue's hill. And of Chrysippus we heard that it was not lawful for him, by any means, to touch upon the island, until he had the fourth time purged himself with Helleborus. The academics, they say, were willing enough to come, but that they yet are doubtful, and in suspense, and cannot comprehend how there should be any such islet. But indeed, I think, they were fearful to come, to be judged by Radamanthus, because themselves have abolished all kind of judgment. Yet many of them, they say, had a desire, and would follow after those that were coming hither, but were so slothful as to give it over, because they were not comprehensive, and therefore turned back in the midst of their way. These were all the men of note that I saw there, and among them all Achilles was held to be the best man, and next to him Theseus. For their manner of venery and copulation, thus it is, they couple openly in the eyes of all men, both with females and male kind, and no man holds it for any dishonesty. Only Socrates would swear deeply that he accompanied young men in a cleanly fashion, and therefore every man condemned him for a perjured fellow, and Hyacinthus and Narcissus both confessed otherwise for all his denial. The women there are all in common, and no man takes exception at it, in which respect they are absolutely the best Platonists in the world. And so do the boys yield themselves to any man's pleasure without contradiction. After I had spent two or three days in this manner, I went to talk with Homer the poet, our leisure serving us both well, and to know of him what countryman he was, a question with us hard to be resolved. And he said he could not certainly tell himself, because some said he was of Chios, some of Smyrna, and many to be of Colophon. But he said, indeed, he was a Babylonian and among his own countrymen not called Homer, but Tigranes, and afterwards living as a hostage among the Grecians, he had therefore that name put upon him. Then I questioned him about those verses in his books that are disallowed as not of his making, whether they were written by him or not, and he told me they were all his own, 
much condemning Xenodotus and Aristarchus, the grammarians, for their weakness in judgment. When he had satisfied me in this, I asked again why he began the first verse of his poem with anger, and he told me it fell out so by chance, not upon any premeditation. I also desired to know of him whether he wrote his Odysseys before his Iliads, as many men do hold, but he said it was not so. As for his blindness, which is charged upon him, I soon found it was far otherwise, and perceived it so plainly that I needed not to question him about it. Thus was I used to do many days when I found him idle, and would go to him and ask him questions, which he would give me answer to very freely, especially when we talked of a trial he had in the court of justice, wherein he got the better, for Thersites had preferred a bill of complaint against him for abusing him and scoffing at him in his palm, in which action Homer was acquitted, having Ulysses for his advocate. About the same time came to us Pythagoras the Samian, who had changed his shape now seven times, and lived in as many lives, and accomplished the periods of his soul. The right half of his body was wholly of gold, and they all agreed that he should have place amongst them, but were doubtful what to call him, Pythagoras or Euphorbus. And Pentacles also came to the place, scorched quite over, as if his body had been broiled upon the embers, but could not be admitted for all his great entreaty. The time passing thus along, the day of prizes for masteries of activity now approached, which they call Thanatusia. The setters of them forth were Achilles the fifth time and Theseus the seventh time. To relate the whole circumstances would require a long discourse, but the principal points I will deliver. At wrestling, Charis, one of the lineage of Hercules, had the best, and won the garland from Ulysses. The fight with fists was equal between Arius the Egyptian, who was buried at Corinth, and Epius, that combated for it. There was no prize appointed for the Pancratian fight, neither do I remember who got the best in running. But for poetry, though Homer without question was too good for them all, yet the best was given to Hesiodus. The prizes were all alike, garlands plotted of peacock's feathers. As soon as the games were ended, news came to us that the damned crew in the habitation of the wicked had broken their bounds, escaped the jailers, and were coming to assail the island, led by Philarsus the Agrigentine, Usurus the Egyptian, Diomedes the Thracian, Siren, Putacamptes, and others, which, Radamanthus hearing, he ranged the heroes in battle array upon the seashore, under the leading of Theseus and Achilles and Ajax Telamonius, who had now recovered his senses, where they joined fight. But the heroes had the day, Achilles carrying himself very nobly. Socrates also, who was placed in the right wing, was noted for a brave soldier, much better than he was in his lifetime in the battle at Delium, for when the enemy charged him, he neither fled nor changed countenance. Wherefore afterwards, in reward of his valor, he had a prize set out for him on purpose, which was a beautiful and spacious garden planted in the suburbs of the city, whereunto he invited many and disputed with them there, giving it the name of Necrodemia. Then we took the vanquished prisoners and bound them, and sent them back to be punished with greater torments. This fight was also penned by Homer, who, at my departure, gave me the book to show his friends, which I afterwards lost, and many things else beside. But the first verse of the poem I remember was, Tell me now, muse, how the dead heroes fought. When they overcome in fight, they have a custom to make a feast with sodden beans, wherewith they banquet together for joy of their victory. Only Pythagoras had no part with them, but sat aloof off and lost his dinner because he could not away with beans. Six months were now passed over, and the seventh halfway onwards, when a new business was begot among us. For Cyrus, the son of Syntharus, a proper tall young man, had long been in love with Helena, and it might plainly be perceived that she as fondly doted upon him, for they would still be winking and drinking one to another whilst they were a-feasting, 
and rise alone together and wander up and down in the wood. This humor increasing, and knowing not what course to take, Cyrus's device was to steal away Helena, whom he found as pliable to run away with him, to some of the islands adjoining, either to Fellow or Tiresa, having before combined with three of the boldest fellows in my company to join with them in their conspiracy, but never acquainted his father with it, knowing that he would surely punish him for it. Being resolved upon this, they watched their time to put it in practice. For when night was come, and I absent, for I was fallen asleep at the feast, they gave a slip to all the rest, and went away with Helena to shipboard as fast as they could. Menelaus, waking about midnight, and finding his bed empty, and his wife gone, made an outcry, and calling up his brother, went to the court of Radamanthus. As soon as the day appeared, the scouts told them they had descried a ship, which by that time was got far off into the sea. Thus Radamanthus sent out a vessel made of one whole piece of timber, of asphodelus wood, manned with fifty of the heroes, to pursue after them, which were so willing on their way that by noon they had overtaken them, newly entered into the milky ocean, not far from Tiresa, so near where they got to make an escape. They took we their ship and hauled it after us with a chain of roses and brought it back again. Radamanthus first examined Cyrus and his companions whether they had any other partners in this plot, and they, confessing none, were adjudged to be tied fast by the privy members and sent into the place of the wicked, there to be tormented, after they had been scourged with rods made of mallows. Helena, all blubbered with tears, was so ashamed of herself that she would not show her face. They also decreed to send us packing out of the country, our prefixed time being come, and that we should stay there no longer than the next morrow. Wherewith I was much aggrieved, and wept bitterly to leave so good a place, and turn wanderer again, I knew not whither. But they comforted me much, in telling me that before many years were passed I should be with them again, and showed me a chair and a bed prepared for me against the time to come, near unto persons of the best quality. Then went I to Radamanthus, humbly beseeching him to tell me my future fortunes, and to direct me in my course. And he told me that after many travels and dangers I should at last recover my country, but would not tell me the certain time of my return, and showing me the islands adjoining, which were five in number, and a sixth a little further off, he said, Those nearest are the islands of the ungodly, which you see burning all in a light fire, but the other sixth is the island of dreams, and beyond that is the island of Calypso, which you cannot see from hence. When you are past these, you shall come into the great continent over against your own country, where you shall suffer many afflictions, and pass through many actions, and meet with men of inhuman conditions, and at length attain to the other continent. When he had told me this, he plucked a root of mallows out of the ground, and reached it to me, commanding me in my greatest perils to make my prayers to that, advising me further neither to rake in the fire with my knife, nor to feed upon lupins, nor to come near a boy when he has passed eighteen years of age. If I were mindful of this, the hopes would be great that I should come to the island again. Then we prepared for our passage, and feasted with them at the usual hour, and next morrow I went to Homer, entreating him to do so much as make an epigram of two verses for me, which he did, and I erected a pillar of barrel stone near unto the haven, and engraved them upon it. The epigram was this. Lucian, the gods beloved, did once attain to see all this, and then go home again. After that day's tarrying, we put to sea, brought onward on our way by the heroes, where Ulysses, closely coming to me that Penelope might not see him, conveyed a letter into my hand to deliver to Calypso in the Isle of Ogesia. Redamanthus also sent Nopolis, the ferryman, along with us, that if it were our fortune to put into those islands, no man should lay hands upon us, because we were bent upon other employments. No sooner had we passed beyond the smell of that sweet odor 
but we felt a horrible, filthy stink, like pitch and brimstone burning, carrying an intolerable scent with it, as if men were broiling upon burning coals. The air was dark and muddy, from which distilled a pitchy kind of dew. We heard also the lash of the whips and the roarings of the tormented. Yet went we not to visit all the islands, but that wherein we landed was of this form. It was wholly compassed about with steep, sharp, and craggy rocks, without either wood or water. Yet we made a shift to scramble up among the cliffs, and so went forwards in a way quite overgrown with briars and thorns, through a most villainous, ghastly country. And coming at last to the prison and place of torment, we wondered to see the nature and quality of the soil, which brought forth no other flowers but swords and daggers, and round about it ran certain rivers, the first of dirt, the second of blood, and the innermost of burning fire, which was very broad and unpassable, floating like water, and working like the waves of the sea, full of sundry fishes, some as big as firebrands, others of a less size, like coals of fire, and these they call like Nisses. There was but one narrow entrance into it, and Timon of Athens appointed to keep the door, yet we got in by the help of Nopleus, and saw them that were tormented, both kings and private persons, very many, of which there were some that I knew, for there I saw Cyrus tied by private members and hanging up in the smoke. But the greatest torments of all are inflicted upon them that told any lies in their lifetime, and wrote untruly, as Tezius the Nidian, Herodotus, and many others, which I, beholding, was put in great hopes that I should never have anything to do there. I do not know that ever I spake any untruth in my life. We therefore returned speedily to our ship, for we could endure the sight no longer, and taking our leave of Nopolis, sent him back again. A little after appeared the Isle of Dreams near unto us, an obscure country, and unperspicuous to the eye, endued with the same quality as dreams themselves are, for as we drew, it still gave back and fled from us, that it seemed to be farther off than at the first. But in the end we attained it, and entered the haven called Hypnus, and adjoined to the Gate of Ivory, where the Temple of Electrian stands, and took land somewhat late in the evening. Entering the gate, we saw many dreams of sundry fashions, but I will tell you first somewhat of the city, because no man else hath written any descriptions of it. Only Homer hath touched it a little, but to small purpose. It is round about environed with a wood, the trees whereof are exceeding high poppies and mandragoras, in which an infinite number of owls do nestle, and no other birds to be seen in the island. Near unto it is a river running, called by them Nyctipurus, and at the gate are two wells, the one named Negritus, the other Panachea. The wall of the city is high and of a changeable color, like unto the rainbow, in which are four gates, though Homer speak but of two. For there are two which look toward the fields of sloth, the one made of iron, the other of potter's clay, through which those dreams have passage that represent fearful, bloody, and cruel matters. The other two behold the haven and the sea, of which the one is made of horn, the other of ivory, which we went in at. As we enter the city, on the right hand stands the temple of the night, whom with Electrian they reverence above all the gods, for he hath also a temple built for him near unto the haven. On the left hand stands the palace of sleep, for he is the sovereign king over them all, and hath deputed two great princes to govern under him, namely Taraxion, the son of Matagenes, and Plutocles, the son of Phantasian. In the midst of the marketplace is a well by them called Cariotus and two temples adjoining, the one of falsehood, the other of truth, which have either of them a private cell peculiar to the priests, and an oracle, in which the chief prophet is Antiphon, the interpreter of dreams, who is preferred by sleep to that place of dignity. 
These dreams are not all alike, either in nature or shape, for some of them are long, beautiful, and pleasing. Others, again, are as short and deformed. Some make show to be of gold, and others to be as base and beggarly. Some of them had wings, and were of monstrous forms. Others set out in pomp, as it were in a triumph, representing the appearances of kings, gods, and other persons. Many of them were of our acquaintance, for they had been seen of us before, which came unto us and saluted us as their old friends, then took us and lulled us asleep, and feasted us nobly and courteously, promising beside all other entertainment which was sumptuous and costly to make us kings and princes. Some of them brought us home to our own country to show us our friends there, and come back with us the next morrow. Thus we spent thirty days, and as many nights, among them, sleeping and feasting all the while, until a sudden clap of thunder awakened us all, and we, starting up, provided ourselves of vittles and took sea again, and on the third day landed in Ogesia. But upon the way I opened the letter I was to deliver, and read the contents, which were these. Ulysses to Calypso standeth greeting. This is to give you to understand that after my departure from you in the vessel I made in haste for myself, I suffered shipwreck, and hardly escaped by the help of Locathea into the country of the Phyx. Who sent me to mine own home, for I found many that were wooers to my wife, and riotously consumed my means. But I slew them all, and was afterwards killed myself by my son Telegonus, whom I begat of Circe, and am now in the Isle of the Blessed, where I daily repent myself for refusing to live with you, and forsaking the immortality proffered me by you. But if I can spy a convenient time, I will give them all the slip and come to you. This was the effect of the letter, but some addition concerning us, that we should have entertainment. And far had I not gone from the sea, but I found such a cave as Homer speaks of, and she herself working busily at her wool. When she had received the letter and brought us in, she began to weep and take on grievously. But afterwards she called us to meet and made us very good cheer, asking us many questions concerning Ulysses and Penelope, whether she was so beautiful and modest as Ulysses had often before bragged of her and we made her such answer as we thought would give her best content. And departing to our ship, reposed ourselves near unto the shore, and in the morning put to sea, where we were taken with a violent storm, which tossed us two days together, and on the third we fell among the Colosynthoparatans. These are a wild kind of men, that issue out of the islands adjoining and prey upon passengers, and for their shipping have mighty great gourds six cubits in length, which they make hollow when they are ripe and cleanse out all that is within them, and use the rinds for ships, making their masts of reeds, and their sails of the gourd leaves. These set upon us with two ships furnished, and fought with us, and wounded many, casting at us instead of stones the seeds of those gourds. The fight was continued with equal fortune until about noon, at which time, behind the Cotosynthoparatans, we spy the Carianotans coming on, who, as it appeared, were enemies to the other, for when they saw them approach, they forsook us and turned about to fight with them. And in the mean space we hoist sail and away, leaving them together by the ears, and no doubt but the Carianotans had the better of the day, for they exceeded in number, having five ships well furnished, and their vessels of greater strength, for they are made of nutshells cloven in the middle and cleansed, of which every half is fifteen fathom in length. When we were got out of sight, we were careful for the curing of our hurt men, and from that time forwards went no more unarmed, fearing continually to be assaulted on the sudden. And good cause we had, for before sunsetting some twenty men or thereabouts, which also were pirates, made toward us, riding upon monstrous great dolphins, which carried them surely, 
and when their riders got upon their backs, would neigh like horses. When they were come unto us, they divided themselves, some on the one side and some on the other, and flung at us with dried cuttlefishes and the eyes of sea-crabs. But when we shot at them again and hurt them, they would not abide it, but fled to the island, the most of them wounded. About midnight, the sea being calm, we fell before we were aware upon a mighty great halcyon's nest, encompassed no less than threescore furlongs, in which the halcyon herself sailed, as she was hatching her eggs, in quantity almost equaling the nest, for when she took her wings, the blast of her feathers had like to have it overturned our ship, making a lamentable noise as she flew along. As soon as it was day, we got upon it, and found it to be a nest fashioned like a great lighter, with trees platted, and wound one within another, in which were five hundred eggs, every one bigger than a ton of kiosk measure, and so near their time of hatching that the young chicks might be seen and began to cry. Then with an axe we hewed one out of the egg in pieces, and cut out a young one that had no feathers, which yet was bigger than twenty of our vultures. When we had gone some two hundred furlongs from this nest, fearful prodigies and strange tokens appeared unto us, for the carved goose, that stood for an ornament on the stern of our ship, suddenly flushed out with feathers and began to cry. Syntharis, our pilot, that was a bald man, in an instant was covered with hair, and which was more strange than all the rest, the mast of our ship began to bud out with branches and to bear fruit at the top, both of figs and great clusters of grapes, but not yet ripe. Upon the sight of this we had great cause to be troubled in mind, and therefore besought the gods to avert from us the evil that by these tokens was portended. And we had not passed full out five hundred furlongs, but we came in view of a mighty wood of pine trees and cypress, which made us think it had been land, when it was indeed a sea of infinite depth, planted with trees that had no roots, but floated firm and upright, standing upon the water. When we came to it and found how the case stood with us, we knew not what to do with ourselves. To go forward through the trees was altogether impossible. They were so thick and grew so close together, and to turn again with safety was as much unlikely. I therefore got me up to the top of the highest tree to discover, if I could, what was beyond. And I found the breadth of the wood to be fifty furlongs or thereabout, and then appeared another ocean to receive us. Wherefore we thought it best to essay to lift up our ship upon the leaves of the trees, which were thick-grown, and by that means pass over, if it were possible, to the other ocean. And so we did. For fastening a strong cable to our ship, we wound it about the tops of the trees, and with much ado poised it up to the height, and placing it upon the branches, spread our sails, carried as it were upon the sea, dragging our ships after us by the help of the wind which set it forwards, at which time a verse of the poet Antimachus came to my remembrance, wherein he speaks of sailing over tops of trees. When we had passed over the wood, and were come to the sea again, we let down our ship in the same manner as we took it up. Then sailed we forwards in a pure and clear stream, until we came to an exceeding great gulf or trench in the sea, made by the division of waters, as many times is upon land, where we see great clefts made in the ground by earthquakes and other means. Whereupon we struck sail, and our ship stayed upon a sudden when it was at the pit's brim ready to tumble in, and we, stooping down to look into it, thought it could be no less than a thousand furlongs deep, most fearful and monstrous to behold, for the water stood, as it were, divided into two parts, but looking on our right hand afar off, we perceived a bridge of water, which to our seeming did join the two seas together, and crossed over from the one to the other. Wherefore we laboured with oars to get unto it, and over it we went, and with much ado got to the further side, beyond all our expectation. Then a calm sea received us. 
and in it we found an island, not very great, but inhabited with unsociable people, for in it were dwelling wild men named Bucephalians that had horns on their heads like the picture of Minotaurus, where we went ashore to look for fresh water and victuals, for ours was all spent. And there we found water enough, but nothing else appeared. Only we heard a great bellowing and roaring a little way off, which we thought to have been some herd of cattle, and going forwards fell upon those men who were spying us, chased us back again, and took three of our company. The rest fled toward the sea. Then we all armed ourselves, not meaning to leave our friends unrevenged, and set upon the Bucephalians as they were dividing the flesh of them that were slain, and put them all to flight, and pursued after them, of whom we killed fifty, and two we took alive, and so returned with our prisoners. But food we could find none. Then the company were all earnest with me to kill those whom we had taken. But I did not like so well of that, thinking it better to keep them in bonds until ambassadors should come from the Bucephalians to ransom them that were taken. And indeed they did. And I well understood by the nodding of their heads and their lamentable lowing, like petitioners, what their business was. So we agreed upon a ransom of sundry cheeses and dried fish and onions and four deer with three legs apiece, two behind and one before. Upon these conditions we delivered those whom we had taken, and tarrying there but one day, departed. Then the fishes began to show themselves in the sea, and the birds flew over our heads, and all other tokens of our approach to land appeared unto us. After a while we saw men traveling the seas, and a new-found manner of navigation, themselves supplying the office both for ship and sailor, and I will tell you how. As they lie upon their backs in the water, and their privy members standing upright, which are of a large size and fit for such a purpose, they fasten thereto a sail, and holding their cords in their hands, when the wind hath taken it, or carried up and down as pleased themselves. After these followed others riding upon cork, for they yoke two dolphins together, and drive them on, performing themselves the place of a coachman, which draw the cork along after them. They never offered us any violence, nor once shunned our sight, but passed along in our company without fear in a peaceable manner, wondering at the greatness of our ship, and beholding it on every side. At evening we arrived upon a small island, inhabited as it seemed only by women, which could speak the Greek language, for they came unto us, gave us their hands, and saluted us, all attired like wantons, beautiful and young, wearing long mantles down to the foot. The island was called Cabalusa, and the city Hydromardia. So the women received us, and every one of them took aside one of us for herself, and made him her guest. But I, pausing a little upon it, for my heart misgave me, looked nervously round about, and saw the bones of many men, and the skulls lying together in a corner. Yet I thought not good to make any stir, or to call my company about me, or to put on arms, but taking the mallow in my hand, made my earnest prayers thereto that I might escape out of those present perils. Within a while after, when the strange female came to wait upon me, I perceived she had not the legs of a woman, but the hoofs of an ass, whereupon I drew my sword, and taking fast hold of her, bound her, and examined her upon the point, and she, though unwillingly, confessed that they were sea-women, called Anosalians, and they fed upon strangers that travelled that way. For, she said, when we have made them drunk, we go to bed with them, and in their sleep make a hand of them. I, hearing this, left her bound in the place where she was, and went up to the roof of the house, where I made an outcry, and called my company to me, and when they were come together, acquainted them with all that I had heard, and showed them the bones, and brought them into her that was bound, who suddenly was turned into water and could not be seen. 
Notwithstanding, I thrust my sword into the water to see what would come of it, and it was changed into blood. Then we made all the haste we could to our ship, and got us away. And as soon as it was clear day, we had sight of the mainland, which we judged to be the country opposite to our continent. Whereupon we worshipped and made our prayers, and took counsel what was now to be done. Some thought it best only to go a land, and so return back again. Others thought it better to leave our ship there and march into the Midland to try what the inhabitants would do. But whilst we were upon this consultation, a violent storm fell upon us, which drave our ship against the shore and burst it all in pieces. And with much ado, we all swam to land with our arms, every man catching what he could lay hands on. These are all the occurrences I can acquaint you with all, till the time of our landing, both in the sea and in our course on the islands, and in the air, and after that in the whale, and when we came out again, what betide us among the heroes and among the dreams, and lastly among the Bucephalians and the Nosaleans, what passed upon land the next books shall deliver. This is the end of Lucian's True History by Lucian of Samosata. Translated by Francis Hicks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2